outsider. There's no need to be. <sighs> My sister's psychic. She wants you to know. I've seen her. And she wants you to know that she's happy. I've seen your little girl sitting between you and your husband. And, and she was laughing. Yes. Oh, yes, she's with you. She's with you, my dear. And she's laughing. I'm sorry if we're stirred. My name's Tom Jennings, and this is the 24 Frames cast. And before this country collapses in to a kind of Mad Max style dystopia which appears to be coming with this whole Brexit fiasco. I am trying to step up the amount of recordings that I do and that has manifested itself into just doing slightly shorter length episodes than normal. So we're going to continue it on today and with the weather outside becoming cold and there's a slight chill in the air as autumn arrives on this fine island, I decided it would be a perfect time to go back and have a look at one of my favourite horror films and to celebrate its recent re-release on UHD and home video and that is Nicholas Rio's Don't Look Now. Hey! 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 Laura! What on earth was that, John? It was Christine. Christine is dead, Laura. You're sad. You're so sad and there's no need to be. I've seen her. My sister's psychic. You can't contact people, can you? She's trying to get in touch with us. Now, through my life of watching films and my journey into cinema, it's been sometimes the films of Nicholas Rieug that have stood out for me. This was primarily because the films I watched mostly when I was younger consisted of the likes of Michael Mann, David Lean, Star Wars, Steven Spielberg. And as such, when I saw the likes of Walkabout first shown to me by my English teacher when I was 14, it seemed so far removed from anything like I was watching at the time. It was a film made by an adult that seemed to have been shot from a child's perspective. The way it briefly hinted at events, the father abandoning the children in the outback, the way in which the film, despite being shot in a developed country, felt like it was in some kind of post-apocalyptic wasteland. It was eerie, intoxicating, and stunningly beautiful, and I never felt truly comfortable watching it, and, the, and its ending stayed with me for days. Was it, I thought, some kind of dream, a false memory, or something mystical and supernatural? I could never really be sure, but for one thing was for certain, it certainly left a lasting impression on me. Next came Performance, which was a film I read about in the well, at the time, that was my monthly Bible for film culture, Neon Magazine. And I duly picked it up on VHS in an HMV 3 for £25 offer. I can't still believe that VHS actually cost that much, but they surely did. 
performance was supposed to be a gangster film which followed and what followed was an experience that left me shocked to the core why had i not seen it before I wondered, and why were people saying Train Spotting was the best British film ever made? Because surely if they'd seen this, they would change their mind pretty soon. Like Walkabout before it, it was full of sudden edits, often jarring, that didn't match eye lines or suddenly change the location or angle. With a handheld aesthetic, the camera seemed freed with Rogue, there didn't seem to be the careful compositions, it was kind of archaic symphony, interspersed with a rather brilliant music video by Mick Jagger. After that, it was these 1980s films Castaway with Oliver Reed and Amanda Donoghue. Sadly, this is a film that has never found its way onto home video, and aside from its scenes of nudity, I recall being very much emotionally invested in the film, and I actually think it was where my fascination with islands came from. I love the idea of their isolation, indeed, their romanticism, and the film really seemed to understand the relationship between the environment and its lead protagonists. It remains a mystery to me why it's never had a home release, it was also, as well, I recently found out, produced by Star Wars producer Rick McCollum. Oh dear, how far he fell. And of course, there was The Man Who Fell to Earth, the insane Eureka and Bad Timing, which I own, but I'm still too afraid to watch. But of course, the one that made the biggest impression on me was Don't Look Now. I am not, by any stretch of the imagination, a huge horror fan. It's not to say I don't like the genre. I just haven't really watched all that many. But what struck me about Don't Look Now was that it was a horror of sorts and so many things in between. Its relevance to me became more obvious this year after a period whereby I had been suffering from a state of panic attacks that had led to me needing some time off work to gather myself. I was for the most part completely fine, yet on certain days a dread of nothing in particular, just an awful, terrible feeling, would seem to linger, turning the most banal thing into a horrendous trauma. One of these days, while I was out for a morning walk, I passed a man who, after he had said good morning to him, looked me straight in the eyes and walked on. I turned around about 20 metres and noticed the man had stopped and was simply staring back at me along the canal. For what felt like an eternity we looked at each other before I carried on, and as I walked away I became convinced, and I mean utterly convinced, that the man was going to my house to kill my cat. The feeling was so real I could have sworn it was actually happening, like I could actually envisage the scene of him doing it. And when I turned around, the man had vanished from my sight, and in my state at the time I began to wonder if the thing had actually occurred in the first place. Yet the dread was still there, and it was a deeply frightening and upsetting feeling. And I only mention this because it wasn't until I revisited the recent release of Don't Look Now that I discovered that the film had somehow managed to capture a very real representation of the experience I had on that day. And it's hard to actually describe the brilliance of Don't Look Now without finding oneself drowning in a sea of cliches, but I will happily jump and waving my arms around frantically. It is, to put it bluntly, sublime. It somehow managed to make you scared, even when it tells you what's going to happen in the first seven minutes. Yet through its craft and its lead protagonists, the possibly never better Donald Sutherland and Judy Christie, you experience a new kind of tragedy come its conclusion, one that always, without fail, is terribly sad and frankly hideous. And I find it's part of the film's unique appeal. And you get out of it what you put in. 
If you want it to be a supernatural thriller, it can be. If you want it to be a terribly sad film about grief and mourning, then it's all there. If you want it to be a slasher film, then you can take that as well. In fact, if you want it to be any of those, and indeed something else entirely, then it can be. Now, of course, we have to go back to that opening. Because as I said before, it tells you everything that is about to happen in the film and also establishes many of the film's key themes and recurring motifs. What are you reading? I was just trying to find the answer to a question Christine was asking me. If the world's round, why is a frozen pond flat? Huh. That's a good question. Ontario curves more than three degrees from its easternmost shore to its westernmost shore. So, frozen water isn't flat. I think is what it seems. We see a young girl, Christine, in, a, in that red mac, playing with her brother running around the garden of a large house. It's winter, it looks freezing, and inside, Christine's parents, John and Laura, Christine Southern, sit in the warm. John sees a picture in which there is someone in a red mac in a church, and of course we make the connection to Christine playing outstairs. We don't see anyone following her. There's nothing to about to jump out the woods and take her. But Rogue lets us know there is something afoot. One of the children breaks some glass. A musical sting suddenly bursts on the soundtrack and John becomes aware, alert, that his daughter may be in danger. Is this instinct or the gift that we will hear later from sisters Heather and Wendy that they talk about in Venice? Whatever it is, John ignores it through the film, with his grisly end being foretold to him long before the events occur. John runs outside where we see that Christine has drowned in a pond. He lifts her out, making a horrendous scream, carrying her back to the house before Laura sees her too and breaks out into a cry of anguish. Many elements we see in this opening will be shown throughout the film. Water, the colour red, smashing glass, and it's through this repetition of these visual elements, the dread we feel in Donut now slowly begins to build. After the opening, we see John and Laura in Venice, where John has taken up a job of restoring a church. We're not sure how much time has elapsed since the death of their daughter, as their grief appears to be more subdued, with some semblance of a life returning. For a time at least, the film begins to settle in what feels like a familiar melodrama, exploring the complexity of grief. Now, both Sutherland and Christie are superb in Don't Look Now, but I think it's Sutherland's John that Rogue and indeed the film take the most time over. This is arguably, I think, his best performance. And Sutherland's career had gone the full length of the new Hollywood era, from The Dirty Dozen, the ridiculous animal in Kelly's Heroes, and let us, let us not forget Hawkeye and MASH. Sutherland's 70s filmography would seem in a variety of genres working with some of the greatest directors of the time such as Federico Fellini, Bernard Bertolucci and would see him ending the decade in 1980 with the waspish Calvin Jarrett in Robert Redford's Oscar-winning Ordinary People. In Don't Look Now, 
Sutherland is more like his performance in Clue, reserved, introspective, distant to Laura, who seems far, far more outgoing of the two and caring. women were influencing me. Maybe, sh maybe I shouldn't see them again. That's what you want, isn't it? Yeah. Maybe I should start taking my pills again. On the desk, right there. There. Don't Look Now is famous for that sex scene. And I really think it is an important scene to talk about in more detail, as I think it is so key to understanding the relationship between John and Laura, especially at this time in their lives. We don't know the exact details, but I think the scene represents the couple's reconnection with each other. We see them enjoying the moment in a variety of positions, and we don't have to be a detective to realize that this might well be the first time they'd had sex since the death of Christine. Its intensity is an integral part of the film's exploration of mourning. Here, in their most intimate moment, you get a sense that both of them are taking a step in their journey to getting back onto a normal life. Not to forget, but to begin the process of getting on with their lives. And I actually think it's wrong to call this a sex scene, and it may sound a tad corny, but I actually think it's a love-making scene, and the difference should be all too apparent. And the way Ryog shoots and edits the scene is also fascinating. We cut to and from them having sex to getting dressed after the event. And I think this too reinforces the togetherness of the couple. It's saying that afterwards they can go out and live a normal life. It's a beautiful scene, masterfully handled, that never in any way feels exploitative or seems to be in the film just for cheap titillation. There's an urban myth surrounding this that Christy and Sutherland were actually doing it for real, which is clearly ridiculous. Yet at the time, it was a genuinely eyebrow-rising moment, trumping anything that would be seen in the slightly more scandalous Last Tango in Paris, which has a bigger reputation for being so sexually explicit. But of course, all this is a rather false dawning in the story. Prior to this scene, we have the introduction of sisters Wendy and Heather. Horror film convention dictates that two old ladies must be some kind of bad omen, especially as Heather is apparently a psychic. And once again, Rio Rogue spells out to us and John that danger is afoot. Heather claims that John has her gift. He is, of course, only aware of this as a form of intuition and nothing more supernatural. And Rogue seeds doubt in our minds too. There is a serial killer on the loose, one of which may, and it might be that the killer is actually wearing a red coat also. Could John's tension not be part of his ongoing stress related to the death of Christine, bearing in mind there are very real-world explanations of what's going on? It's ridiculous. Hey, I want to meet you. No, I'm not going to get involved with two neurotic old women in a session of mumbo-jumbo. No Listen, way. I've been trying very hard to hang on to myself and to, and to forget about what happened. 
to get rid of this emptiness. It's been with me like some pain. And finally, finally, through these two women, I've discovered how. I mean, they disapprove of mumbo-jumbo, too. They use that very word. Of course they do. They, they just want to help, that's all. Laura, do you not see that what the... She's going to try and reach her. Okay, Laura, that's enough. Now listen to me. I've listened to you. You were the one who said let the children play where they want to. You let it go near that pond. Thanks for the memories, Laura. Oh, Thank you. You said you'd give your life in exchange for hers. Well, you can't do that. Jesus H. Christ. John, she's trying to get in touch with us. Maybe to forgive. Okay, go on. Go on, you crazy women. They can have their... Go on. Get out. But there is an ever-present hint of marital tension. Does Laura in fact blame John for what's happened? And of course, need we be reminded, Don't Look Now is a horror film. The choice of Venice for John to lose himself in work-wise seems at least to be a good idea. Foreign country, big restoration job. But then think about Venice a little deeper. It's a city built on water. There is an ever-present reminder that the very substance that killed his daughter is actually all around him. And then it's a labyrinth of dark, rat-infested streets and nocturnal terrors. Rogue uses a soundtrack for scares, cats hissing, sudden crashes, along with the occasional POV shot showing John's darting glances. And make no mistake, this is not a pretty Venice. It's not David Lean's summertime. This is a gothic maze. It's cold, bleak-looking city filled with ever-present reminders of the past, literally bodies being pulled out of the water at times. And John and Laura always seem to be outsiders in it. We are not provided with subtitles when anyone speaks Italian. You're never quite sure what is actually being said. For example, after Laura has returned to England to look after their son and John has gone to the police fearing that she has been kidnapped, we see the police following it, John. And for what reason are they doing it? We were never really quite sure. And road direction constantly reminds us that something is afoot. The use of reflections in scenes, such as when Laura is in the toilets with Heather and Wendy after she first meets them, is particularly striking. The mirror gives us a reflection of reality, yet somehow in its two-dimensional form we see Laura almost cloned across the screen. Which one is the real Laura? You can't escape the expression in her face, the sense of hopelessness, the wonder and the comfort she takes from hearing that Heather can see Christine with them. It's an odd and jarring moment, and there are other such examples too, such as when John walks into the police officer who appears from behind a huge desk lamp. It's almost comedic, yet it's totally unsettling. You're not sure if the officer is actually taking all this entirely seriously. And indeed, it does seem like reality itself is being tested in the film. The phone call between John and Laura when she is in England seems to suggest that John's grip on reality is finally beginning to sleep. He is convinced that he has seen her on the boat with Heather and Wendy that very day when she should have been in England. And yet the penny doesn't seem to be dropping for him that all this is actually part of something that he's seeing in the future, a kind of precognition. And he is, by not acting on it, playing his own part in his demise as the film works towards its inevitable conclusion. Mrs. Babbage, John Baxter. Oh, hello, Mr. Baxter. Hello. Wires were down or some such silly nonsense. I, 
Now, the main thing is Johnny's absolutely fine. Right. Quite right as rain. Good. He woke up this morning with no headache, no after effects. Good. And as fit as a fiddle. The doctors let him get up. Now he's playing around. He will be quite some sort of hero at school. <laughs> oh, the doctor doesn't even think it's concussion. But oh. Johnny's perfectly well aware of all the events that led up to it. That's marvellous. Well, that's something they have to watch out for, apparently. Yes. I suppose you... I expect you'd like to speak to your wife, Mr. Baxter. Sorry? Here she is. What? I've, I've lost... Hello, darling. What? what? Laura? Oh, John, isn't it ridiculous? It's perfectly all right. The doctor says there's nothing wrong with him. Absolutely nothing. He just has this little bump on his forehead. <laughs> John, are you all right? <laughs> Where are you? I'm, I'm, I'm at Alberto's. I don't know what time it gets in, but uh, uh, we can have a late dinner. And everything's very good. John's fine, and I'm, I'm okay. Okay. Laura, I thought I saw you here today. I, I, I thought I saw you with with the two sisters, with the with the with the two women. I, I was certain. I swore it. Darling, it's all right. Don't worry, sweetheart. Listen, I've just found the uh, flight number. It's. Uh, Laura, it's... where are you? I'm at Porton, John. Johnny and I just got back from having tea there. Now, my arrival yeah. time is 11 o'clock. It's... Uh, just a second. I'll, I've got a pencil. And you stay at Alberta's and I'll come okay. straight there. Right? Okay. Uh, okay, I'll wait. All right, you guys stay there and, and um, I'll see you about 11. All right? Yeah. John, is that all right? Okay. John? Yes. Is that all right? Yeah. I love you. Bye. Yet in that phone call, he still cannot work it out. And the more you see it, the more you watch it, the more you want to bellow at him to run the fuck away. And God knows this was a double bill with the Wicker Man. I would have left the cinema shaking my head in frustration. So of course when we do get to that ending, Don't Look Now really embraces its horror roots. John sees the killer running through the streets wearing a wet red coat and follows them into a building. As he goes deeper and deeper into it, the mise-en-scene begins to tell us what's going to happen. Low-lying fog hogs the floor. The killer hides in the shadows. And then, as John confronts them, perhaps wanting to see Christine, he is instead greeted with a knife blow to the neck, causing blood to flow across the screen. We cut back to the film's opening. It's all become circular. John, having seen what is going to happen to him, has played an active part in his own demise. And something struck me again about watching Don't Look Now. There's something even more disconcerting, I believe, that happens at the film's conclusion when we see Laura on a waterborne funeral procession with her son, Heather and Wendy, presumably with the body of John. Laura hardly has the look of a grief-stricken wife Indeed, there's almost a look of contentment on her face. The soundtrack suggests melancholy. But I was beginning to wonder, perhaps Dora had found true peace now that he has gone. There were, of course, the hints in the film that she blamed him for all of this. And I may be reading way too much into it. And I've only ever really felt this for the first time since watching it. But therein lies the appeal of such a classic film. You can appreciate them in new ways. And there is much in Don't Look Now to admire. From Pino Donigio's score, Rose's direction, and Graham Clifford's editing, this is a virtual masterclass. 
in the art form and aesthetics of cinema, with, with pitch-perfect performances from Christie and Sutherland. Horror is a genre that critics often fail to take seriously. It's too lowbrow, too well tacky to be taken seriously. And Don't Now was released as a double bill with The Wicker Man, which kind of says a lot about how it was thought in terms of its place in culture at the time. Yet it's almost a perfect example of why thinking negatively about genre film is so ridiculous. As I mentioned before, Ordinary People, Sutherland's film from 1980, would go on to win Best Picture and Best Director for Robert Redford. It's an okay film, and it won a few Oscars, but who really cares about it all that much? Don't Look Now is, in comparison, an artistic triumph, a visually inventive exploration of what the medium of film, not just horror, can do. It is an overused term to use when we're talking about films, but it is a classic from a director working at the peak of his powers at exactly the right time in history. It is his greatest achievement, and what's odd to me, and looking over his filmography, is perhaps that Rowe doesn't quite get the credit he deserves, and I only feel with time that his stock in the world of cinema is going to increase even more. So that's going to be it for this episode of the 24 Frames cast. I will be returning soon. Um, there'll be some more Master of Cinema casts as well coming. So you can follow me on Twitter at 24 Framescast. You can email me at 24Framescast at gmail.com. And you can find me on Facebook. I'm the Tom Jennings who's got a hoodie on pulling a rather stupid football hooligan face. Uh, many thanks for listening and I'll be in contact soon. Bye.